You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the double murder of a beloved husband and wife, Lester and Carol Dotts, in their Tennessee home, at the hands of three dangerous young men. Instead of their loved ones celebrating the couple's approaching 45th anniversary with them, they were left to mourn their deaths. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. In 1995, 67-year-old Carol Dotts and her 69-year-old husband Lester Dotts, who went by Les, were enjoying a peaceful life together in the town of Farragut, Tennessee, located in Knox County. As their 45th wedding anniversary was approaching, they were looking forward to their golden years together. But sadly, three troubled young men with criminal backgrounds would prevent the Dotts from growing old together. All too often, we discuss someone searching for justice for their murdered family members. But sometimes, even when you get justice, 
You have to continue fighting to keep it, even over a quarter of a century after that justice was obtained. This is a story about fighting to hold on to justice. Carol Dodds was born as Carol Jean Baker on Christmas Eve in 1927. She was a loving soul who volunteered and helped rescue animals. She graduated from Wittenberg University, where she was Kappa Delta. Les was born on October 30, 1925, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He owned a business and served his country proudly in the Second World War. He was part of the Phi Gamma Delta fraternity in college. After a meeting at Wittenberg University in Ohio, Les and Carol Dotts married on June 17, 1950, one year after their first date. The couple had one child, a daughter, Jeannie. In 1961, they moved to East Tennessee. The Dots' home provided a safe and loving environment for both people and pets. Growing up, Jeannie's friends would always flock to the home, often spending time with and hanging out with Les and Carol, sometimes asking them for honest advice, or just hanging out and watching TV. Les and Carol also provided a loving home to their pets, some of which were rescues. One of their most beloved pets was a collie named Honey Bear, who kept the Dots busy and happy in their later years. On February 3, 1995, three young men, 13-year-old Harley Watts, 20-year-old Thomas Gagney Jr., and 18-year-old David Scarborough, took a drive through Farragut. Thomas, the oldest, was driving, and they decided to go to an upper-class neighborhood looking for a house that they could rob. They ended up at a dead-end street in the Village Green neighborhood where Carol and Les Dots lived. Carol and Les had gone out to dinner that night, so their home was empty and no one answered the door when the group rang the doorbell as a test to see if anyone was home. The house seemed like a great target as David and Thomas got out of the car, leaving Harley as their young lookout. About 30 minutes later, Thomas and David came running back to the car quickly. They jumped in, and the trio sped away. David was holding a gun, and he gave it to Thomas, who yelled out that he had just shot some people that had walked in on him during the robbery. As they drove off, Thomas threw something out the window, and they fled into the night. Sadly, the people he had shot were Carol and Wes, who had returned home from dinner, and the young lookout had failed to notice and warn the others that were burglarizing their home. On what was supposed to be a quiet, uneventful night after a nice dinner together, before turning in for the night, Les Dots had been shot five times, and Carol Dots had been shot seven times, both with a 9mm handgun. Les's wallet, which was in his pants pocket, was taken. Carol had been shot directly in the head, and news reports estimate that the gun was just seven inches from her head at the time. Her purse was also taken. It was a brutal and cold-blooded attack on the beloved couple. Instead of celebrating their 45th anniversary together, Carol must died by each other's side, probably shocked and afraid at what was happening to them. The next morning, their son-in-law, Robert, who worked with Les and Carol at their business, went to their home office only to find their blinds still closed. Robert thought that Les and Carol had just been out late the night before and were sleeping in, so he got what he needed from the office. Their dog, Honey Bear, came up to Robert and greeted him. Nothing seemed out of order, and Robert left. But later, he realized he needed something else from the office, so he went back to the Dots' home. This time, he found their bodies and realized that their home had been broken into and ransacked. He called the police and then went home to break the devastating news to his wife, Jeannie, that her parents were dead. Police arrived and began to investigate. The missing wallet and purse were soon found dumped not far from the home. It wasn't long before police ended up speaking with Harley Watts, who 
who was arrested for stealing a car. In a panic, he began spilling the beans about what he had done with his cohorts to Carol and Les, and he quickly pointed the finger in the murders at Thomas Gagney Jr. and David Scarborough. He admitted that the three of them had been looking for cars to break into that night when Thomas decided to rob a home instead. David told the police that he waited behind the home as sort of a secondary lookout while Harley waited in the car, and that it was Thomas that broke into the house. Then the shooting started. The trio of young hoodlums was arrested for the murder of Lester and Carol Dodds, and the community was outraged at what these three young men had done. But many of them weren't shocked, because this trio had criminal histories, or had families that did. At trial, the jury found David Scarborough guilty of two counts of felony murder, two counts of theft, and one count of aggravated burglary. The felony murder convictions were later reversed on appeal because the jury had not been instructed properly, which we'll get into. Thomas Gagney Jr. pleaded guilty to two counts of felony murder and one count of aggravated burglary, and two counts of theft, and he was handed two life sentences. Due to the technical issue in Scarborough's trial, he faced a new trial, but in 2006, in order to avoid that retrial, he took a plea deal and was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. This plea deal specified that he would not be eligible for parole until at least 2026. During trial proceedings, it came to light that just two days before Les and Carol were murdered, a man named Tim Fitzpatrick was shot in his home during a robbery attempt with the same gun that killed Les and Carol, but he survived. It was further proof that these three criminals were very dangerous young men. Harley Watts, who was 13 at the time of the murders, was released in 2001, and he's gone on to commit further crimes including aggravated burglary, financial exploitation, and theft. Thomas Gagney Jr. is not eligible for parole. However, David Scarborough is up for parole, and earlier than expected. His parole hearing is on December 9, 2021, just days from when this episode is being released. Carol and Les's daughter, Jeannie, has created a petition to ensure that David Scarborough remains behind bars. She wants to make sure that he can never take someone's loved one from them, the way he took her parents from her. She wants to keep him behind bars. But time is of the essence. Again, this episode is being published on December 4th, 2021, just days before Scarborough is up for parole. Jeannie's trying to collect 2,500 signatures, hoping that that support will help keep him behind bars where he belongs. And there's still enough time to sign Jeannie's petition. And she hopes she will help her by visiting change.org and then searching for her petition, Justice for Carol and Les Dots. Please, if you can take a moment to help Jeannie, it would be greatly appreciated. And if you can, share this podcast episode and her petition on your social media so that others can sign the petition as well. But again, time is of the essence. Jeannie sat down with me to talk about the tragic and senseless act of violence that stole her beloved parents from her. That discussion is coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, it's hard to believe, but summer's over. Now we're officially in fall. But just because the season's changed, doesn't mean that things that have been weighing on us suddenly disappear. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, I'm happy to tell you there's help. And that help is better help. BetterHelp Online Counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. And you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. 
all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from anxiety, depression, and grief, to sleep issues, LGBT matters, and family conflicts, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential, and while BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a healthier life today. As a listener of the Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to betterhelp, that's H-E-L-P dot family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. Hi, Jeannie, and thanks for coming on to discuss your parents' case with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I, I appreciate the support and the help. Well, it's my pleasure. I, I know you faced and survived something awful and tragic, something none of us should ever have to face, the double murder of our parents in their own home. And I guess to start off, how old were you when this happened to your mom and dad, and how did you personally react to something that horrible and tragic when it first happened, and, and how did you overcome it? Well, I was an adult. I was 38. Um, I was very, very close to my parents. My husband, my mom and dad had a small business together, and the four of us were, were, were very close. We were family, and we were friends. So to have something like this happen, out of the blue, for no good reason, just boggles the mind is for lack of a better term the day that my husband found their bodies i was home working all day on the com- on, on the computer for stuff i needed to do for work and when he got home he, i could tell something was wrong because there was a sheriff's officer there and our next door neighbor was there and Linda had this look on her face, and my first reaction was, oh, my gosh, something's happened to Paul and the kids. And then I realized, wait a minute, she's looking at me like that. And my husband sat down on the edge of the couch and took my hands, and he said, you know, your mom and dad are dead. And I said, no. And he nodded. He said, yes, they are. And I'm, no. And... I said, what happened? Was it an accident? Was it a drunk driver? And he just, he, he was shaking. He, tears were coming down his face. And he looked over at the sheriff's officer, kind of a silent plea for help. And the sheriff's officer said, no, it was not an accident. It was intentional. They were murdered. And I remember standing there and saying, no. No, no. And I started walking around our family room in a circle. And it's not so much that I remember doing that as I remember the the feeling of me doing that. And it's like I was kind of also standing back watching myself doing that. I was in complete 100% denial. And... I just was absolutely frozen inside and out. I don't think I've ever felt so cold in my life. 
when you get that kind of news, you know, that kind of horrible news, everybody reacts differently. I got cold. It sounds like you I were mean, sort of in shock, maybe? Yes, definitely. Because Brian looked at the officer, you know, because he sees me doing this loop around the room, and he's getting a little panicky. And the officer said, she's in shock. So I stopped all of a sudden, turned around, and went, where's Honey Bear? Is Honey Bear okay? And Honey Bear was my parents' collie. Uh, she was a rescue. She was taken away from her original owners by our wonderful veterinary clinic. And she was so sick and so neglected and so abused that even with the medical treatment they were, the vet was were treating her with, um, they weren't sure she was going to make it. My parents took one look at her and said, we're going to adopt her, and we're going to make sure she gets, you know, her, continues her medical treatment, and we're going to do everything we can to make her healthy and happy. And if for some reason the medical treatment doesn't take, we're just going to give her all the love that she could ever handle for the time she has left. And she turned out, not only did she survive, she thrived. Uh, you would never have known the look at her later to think that there had ever been wrong with that, that, that beautiful collie girl that when we first saw her, she could hardly stand up. She was so weak. So all of a sudden, I was literally hell-bent on getting over to my parents' house. I wanted Honey Bear. I needed Honey Bear. And the officer said, no, I'll, I'll go get her for you. And I'm like, no, I want to go get her. Of course, there's no way I should. There was no. I was not in any kind of sort of rational place. So there was no way I should have been behind the wheel of a car. And he, the officers, finally calmed me down a little bit and said, "She's in the back of a police cruiser. It's the heat's on. She's nice and warm and cozy, and she's getting fussed on us." He said, "I'll go get her for you." So I said, okay. And of course, later on, he, you know, a little while later, he did bring her back. But unfortunately for us, there was an unethical news reporter who, even though the sheriff had clearly stated to them, the family has not been notified. Of course, the only person that knew was my husband because he was the one that found them. And he said, you know, do not mention their names and do not take shots of the house, but, you know, just plain no. And this woman goes on live, because it's, it's right after 6 o'clock, so this is 6 o'clock news time, going, well, can you at least confirm that Les and Carol Dots were murdered in their village green home? That's terrible. So, She's trying to... Trying to get a news headline, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, just she wanted to scoop. And um, so all of Knox County, who was watching that particular station, at six, you know, between 6 and 6.15 on Saturday, February the 4th, 1995, knew my parents had been murdered before I did. That's awful. So I think this was about... 20 after 6, 6.15, 20 after 6, when Bri got the sheriff's officer and brought him back from the house. And I had, you know, I hadn't had the TV on when I was, um, 
working on the computer, which was kind of unusual because usually for some background noise, um, I would have it on. So because of that, he hadn't been home 10 minutes. I had absolutely no time to absorb this information. Mm. And the phone starts ringing, so Linda starts screening calls for us. People start knocking at the door. Yeah, and these these were friends and neighbors, and they were there because they they cared. They had no clue that I had just literally found out. And at that point, they had no clue that Bri was the one that found them. So that entire evening, um, you know, we've got people coming, and and Bri and I kind of go into host and hostess mode, almost like little zombies making sure people have something to eat, something to drink, and, and so on and so forth. And I say a little while later, um, the officer brought Honey Bear home. She and our colleague, Mischief Marie, were the best of buds. And uh, they they always got along together, and you know they, they were wonderful together. So anyway, I got to the foyer of our house, as the officer was bringing her in and I just dropped to my knees and I wrapped my arms around her and I started sobbing. Yeah. You knew how yeah. important she was to your, to your parents and, and you were just thankful that she was okay. Like. Oh yeah. And I loved her dearly too. I mean, we all did. And I was so grateful she was alive. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. so that was, Kind of the beginning of our journey into what I refer to as the criminal lack of justice system for victims of violent crime and their loved ones. That's a, that's a good way to put it. Um, and, and before we get into the details of, of what exact, exactly happened to your parents and who was responsible for their murders, can you tell us a little bit about your mom and dad and maybe share some of your memories of them with listeners? Sure, sure. Well... One of my favorite mo- memories of my father um, involves Honey Bear. Like I said, she was so malnourished, so weak, had been abused and neglected um, when they brought her home. And she'd been with them a few weeks, and she was already doing so much better. Well, I stopped by on the way home from work one day to pick up a book my mom had read was she was going to lend to me. And... We always we never went in each other's front doors. We we had our uh, garage door openers on the same signal, so we would just go in through the garage. So I went through the garage, through the laundry room, into the kitchen, and I could hear from the family room. I could hear my father going, "Grr, grr." I'm like, "Oh, what on earth is he doing now?" And I go in there, and there is my dad on his hands and knees with the end of a rope toy in his mouth, putting the other end in Honey Bear's mouth, teaching her how to play. She didn't know how to play. <laughs> so it sounds like he knew how to how to have fun and just uh, relax and not be too uptight. Oh, yeah, there was definitely nothing uptight about my parents. But I say that will always be one of my favorite memories is to see a grown man you know, it, it is just, I can't think, have that memory hit me with a, a humongous grin coming on my face. Because I just stood there for a couple of minutes just watching. 
He had no clue I was there, <laughs> which made it even better. Yeah. So, um, you know, just such big hearts. They had such amazingly big hearts. And uh, I grew up with collies in a shelter. Uh, my parents loved animals. And my mom had had a couple of collies when she was growing up. And in fact, their first collie, Duke, uh, was a housewarming present from my Uncle Don, my mom's brother, and his wife when they bought their first house. And uh, he was three years old when I was born and immediately decided I was his. So I kind of inherited the uh, the love of of animals and especially towards collies and shelties. But uh, see, my mom is one of those people. She could be very, very prim and proper on one hand. And the other hand, we could let her hair down in a heartbeat. She did not fluster easily. I mean, just did not. And we had this little itty-beeny, I mean, tiny cabin on a, Angler's Cove on Wattsboro Lake on the side of um, Round Mountain here in East Tennessee. And we had this little flat-bottom boat with a half-horsepower half trolling motor. And our Sheltie and our Collie used to like to ride around in that with us. So my dad and I were out tooling around and just, you know, enjoying the day. My mom was up in front of the cabin in a, a little area in a lawn chair reading a book. Now, our property's next-door neighbor, and by say by next-door neighbor, like two acres away, because I think we had like four acres, was, um, ran a cattle farm, Black Angus. So my mom was sitting there reading, and she fell asleep. Well, we we had we had headed back in, and we had, we were in the process of tying, you know, getting the boat up on the the ground, and then there was like this little hill that my dad built, had built steps on, so we were getting ready to go up the hill, and all of a sudden we can hear my mom talking to somebody, and we're like, okay, the dogs are with us; she's not talking to them, and we come up, and she's sitting there. A black, well, these little black Angus calves apparently had gotten through the fence, had come over and nudged her on the shoulder while she was dozing. And instead of jumping up and screaming like a lot of people would, she goes, well, hello, how are you? Are you lost? And starts scratching its face, petting its nose. And I'm just like... My parents are nuts. <laughs> so it just sounds <laughs> like they're r- real anim- big time animal lovers, then. Oh yeah, and uh, you know they just couldn't. You couldn't found two people with more open hearts than them. When I was growing up, um, you know, my friends always loved my parents. And the neighborhood I grew grew up in, there were kids. You know, the I think the av the, the smallest average you know family. Other, you know, I was an only child, but uh, was like four to six kids. We had lots of families with eight and ten kids, a couple with thirteen, one with fifteen. So there was always 
you know, kids and activities for the kids and people in the neighborhood and everything. We'd all get together. So I grew up in a, literally in a community, in a, in a very sharing community. When we moved from West Hill to the Village Green, right from my junior year in high school, um, my parents already knew people who lived in the neighborhood. They had some friends. Our, my house, or our house, became the place that my friends from high school hung out. And, you know, their parents knew they were going to be safe there because the, it was the rule. My parents weren't home. Other than a couple of close girlfriends, nobody else was coming in. And it didn't take long that, uh, you know, all of a sudden I'd be looking around in the family room. We'd have music on. We might be watching TV. We might be playing bumper pool, uh, card games, or working. And I know several people would be missing. Well, my mom and dad turned one of the extra bedrooms into like a little TV room. They'd be in there with them. Hanging out with your parents. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and even like sometimes somebody would stop by. And I actually had more guy friends than girlfriends when I was in high school. Um, somebody would show up at the door and mom would go, oh, Jeannie's not here. She's out. Oh, it's okay. We'll just hang with you. And mom and dad said, you know, we would have really liked to have had a Friday or Saturday night to ourselves sometimes, but they weren't going to turn them away. Yeah, seems like they were really uh, welcoming, friendly people. They were. And a lot of times my friends would tell my parents, especially my mom, things that they couldn't feel talk- comfortable talking about to their parents. And they didn't even tell me. And my mom and dad were always completely honest with them. Whether, you know, they're going to tell you, you know, you ask me a question, I'm going to answer you honestly. And you might not like the answer. And I realized one day years ago that I'm the same way. You know, don't ask me a question if you don't want to hear how I really feel about it. Sure. If you don't want me to speak the truth. And, you know, they just, they were there for them. Yeah. And you mentioned this community. It was the Village Green section of Farragut. Is that is it Farragut? Right. It's uh yeah. It was uh, it's a it's a very large subdivision now. Um, they were just beginning to build uh, houses on the street behind my parents when they moved in. They were the third street in. Okay. And how so, long had your parents lived there for when this uh, when they were killed? Well, they moved in in July of 1972, got a real good deal on the house because the builder got caught fooling around with his secretary, and he had to sell fast before his wife got hold of everything. <laughs> so <laughs> it's amazing how that works out that way. So, and, they, and they had been talking to him about building a house, and he goes, listen, I got a deal for because he planned on moving into it. And so it's, you know, it was a custom build. It was built by somebody who was going to live there himself, so you knew it was done right. Yeah. And uh, it was just, those Green was just very, it was like a giant family in some respects. Um, once in, in July of every year, they used to have this big cookout barbecue thing up, up by the swimming pool. That wasn't a very big pool, but, you know, it was nice. It was, and we enjoyed it. And, uh, they what they do is, is a lot of the 
the men would get together the night before because you had to baste it and turn it or whatever they did. They would stay up all night playing cards and taking care of that. And then the next day, basically the entire day, everybody was there hanging out, swimming in the pool or playing cards or, you know, playing badminton. And that would go on until way late into the night. We used to all get together when we got a lot more snow then than we do now. And, uh, of course, we were never exactly what you would call the uh, pinnacle <laughs> of snow skiing area. You know, you'd have to get the, uh, up into the Smoky Mountains to do that. But we had a couple of really good hills that was great for sledding. And you'd see, you know, there'd be parents up there, uh, build a bonfire, there'd be hot chocolate, um, and we would be sledding and um, my, you know, friends, friends of those, of those of us who lived there would come over from other neighborhoods, and then all of a sudden call their parents and say, "We can't get home." <laughs> <laughs> my best friend did that several times. <laughs> so you could ha- hang out there a little bit more together. Yep. It, and it, uh, it, it sounds like a, a nice, close knit community. Well, as I say, it, it really wasn't. You know, when I was growing up. And when my and I don't you know, and it was still a close community in many respects um, when my parents were murdered. Um, but it had just, the subdivision had gotten so large, it had lost a lot of that um, connectivity. Yeah, when when it's more of a small town feel, then you start expanding, and then right, you know, it gets bigger and bigger and hard to keep that that uh, community feeling. What was crime like there? Was it relatively low crime? Was there any history of any kind of uh, violence or any bad things that happened there? Really, um, if any crime, you really didn't hear much about crime. You know, because, you know, a lot of it just did not happen. And, you know, the biggest thing, I think, was most of the crime at that point in time was more pointed down to a lot of it was near UT campus if it was drug involved. And also you didn't have the internet, so you didn't get a lot of the things that happened, I don't think really filtered all the way through the area like they do now. But we, you know, we didn't really think about it. I mean, we always kept the doors locked or whatever, but you didn't think about it. I never thought twice. You know, so it could be 11 o'clock at night. My husband had traveled with his job at the time, 11 o'clock at night. Darn, I'm out of something. I just go to Kroger. I just go to the store, 11, 11.30 at night. Didn't think twice about it. You couldn't pay me to do that now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, part of that is stemming from my, you know, I've been diagnosed with PTSD. I do not drive by myself after dark unless I have no choice in the matter. Coming home to an empty house is not going to happen. Never mind the fact we have two collies and two shelties that are all very noisy, and we also have two cats and a fish, and they're all rescues. We have a security system. And it's going to happen. I even tried one time to cure my phobia. My husband was up in Ohio visiting his, his parents, and... I decided one evening it was, a, and it was a, you know summer, beginning of summer, and 
about 7.30, quarter of 8, I thought, okay, I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to take my time so it'll be not dark, dark when I get home, but, it, you know, dark enough because I'm going to see if I can't break this phobia. And as I'm driving out of our subdivision, we live in a very small subdivision. Um, one of my neighbors flagged me down. I said, no, hey, Ralph, how you doing? He goes, Jenny, you can't leave the subdivision. I said, why? He said, um, there was two burglar apparently two guys robbed a bank and they turned into our subdivision not realizing it didn't have an outlet and as they turned in the dye pack went off and they went into the ditch so they were running around somewhere in the neighborhood i didn't know my car could go that fast to get from ralph's house to my house as quickly as i did and i got in here and shut the doors turned on the security system pulled the dray i was terrified and on top of it it turned out The car they were driving, they had stolen from a couple who lived in Village Green that they beat up and tied up and left them in their house and then stole their car after they had robbed the bank. So this is some some scary stuff that's happening in in an area that used to be really comfortable. Yeah, this was about three, three and a half years after that, after my parents were murdered. So... I mean, and it's still at that point in time that was still unusual. So I had decided, okay, the universe does not want me to be cured of my phobia, and I'm never going to try again. Wow. And it's all, it sounds like it started with your parents, but then other incidents just sort of built on top of that. Oh, yeah, have definitely contributed to it. I mean, PTSD, uh, you know, you figure your body, your, especially your brain, a lot of it's chemicals and electrical signals and, and electrical impulses. And what I've read about PTSD is it actually kind of rewires your brain so that, you know, things, you look at things differently, you feel things differently. And some of the byproduct, for lack of a better word, from PTSD are migraines, vertigo, Anxiety and panic attacks. And oh, guess who ended up with all of those? So, mm-hmm. you know, I just do, it, do what I can to control them. I don't think anyone can blame you for having, you know, PTSD after something like this happening. It's, you know, I talk to so many people that are affected, you know, with these ripple effects, you know, when, when someone's killed. Uh, in your case, two loved ones uh, of mm-hmm. yours were killed. There's a ripple effect. There's other things that come that happen as a result of that that are life changing for people. So I don't think any anyone can, you know, blame you or fault you for for having this following something tragic like that. Oh, you would be surprised at the number of ignorant and insensitive people out there that have told me I need to move on, I need to get over it, and I need to quit being a professional victim. They consider my, well, one of uh, David Leon Scarborough, the one who's coming up for parole from his part of murdering my parents, his one cousin uh, refers to me as a professional victim because I am standing up for my parents and because I am protesting his cousin's parole. Mm, That's all. And I mean... Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, we've been harassed off and on by his family for years. And 
it was just like little bits here and there until the first parole, and his one aunt told me I needed to quit picking on him. But uh, this time, it's they've really ramped up and gotten nasty. Oh. Uh, and oh, um, they tell me that they, the David should, uh, the Scarborough should sue me for slander. Everything I've said in the petition, everything I've said in emails, on Facebook, on Nextdoor, whatever, on interviews, you can find that in the court records. You can find that in his confession. And you know, and you can find like the t- the TV stations that were in the court recorded it. Not to mention the fact we were there. I remember some of that. There are parts of that trial that are like I can. If the moment I think about it, the clarity. It's almost like it's playing out in front of my face, right there again. Let's let's talk a little bit about th- these two individuals. How did they happen? To come into contact with your parents, what set this all in motion, and and how quickly did they get caught? How did they get caught? Well, there were three of them. Thomas Gagne Jr. was a few weeks from being 21, David Leon Scarborough a few weeks from being 19, and Harley Watts a few weeks from being 14. Now, Gagne came from like this little mini-crime mafia family, Um, his father was his father was the epitome of evil but what happened is the three of them had basically been going through village green ringing doorbells trying to find a house that nobody was home and now when my parents were gone they still left you know like a light couple lights on here and there to make it look like somebody might be home plus there was an 84 pound collie in the house barking her head off so when they rang the front the door and nobody came, the thing was be as ironic is if my dad had been out of town for you know because he traveled to job, my mother if the doorbell rang she wouldn't have answered it. Even if she, you know she'd been there she wouldn't have got, she wouldn't answer have answered it because you know she figured I don't know you you're you don't, you know you're not going to be showing up in my house without calling this time of night you know kind of thing. But uh, they went around the back and they broke in, said went into the screened in porch and then broke in. From the screening porch through into the kitchen, and my parents had gone out to dinner. It was supposed to have snowed that night. There'd been a big front coming down that stopped and went someplace else, which is not unusual in East Tennessee because East Tennessee is actually one of the more difficult places in the world to accurately predict weather because we're sandwiched in between the Smoky Mountains and the Cumberland Ridge Mountains, and we also have two different jet streams. The go above us. So because it hadn't snowed, it had been cold, and they had mouth, they had cabin fever, and they went out to dinner. You don't know how badly I wish it had snowed that night. Because those three pieces of trash, Harley Watts was a lookout in the car, and Gagne and Scarborough broke into my parents' house. And my parents came home from going out to dinner. They shot my father five times, my mom seven. They took the wallet out of my dad's pants while he was laying there dying. Because unfortunately, their deaths were not instantaneous. They would, you know, there is no way an ambulance could have gotten there quick enough for what the medical examiner said. 
But the thing is, with my mom, they shot her six times from across the room. Then they walked up and put the gun less than seven inches from her forehead and pulled the trigger. And where she was when they started shooting her, where she ended up slumped, for lack of a better word, was next to an end table that had a cordless phone on it. And the thing was, the way the couch was and the lamp and that cordless phone, if they hadn't walked up to my mom to shoot her in the forehead, which they would have had to, she would have already been on the floor at that point, they wouldn't have seen the phone, the cordless phone. So they stole the phone and the base. Never mind, they just shot someone from a set across the room, and they also shot her right in the forehead. They wanted to make sure she couldn't call out for help. Sounds like a very cold-blooded group of uh, young men, for a better term. Oh, they are. Well, uh, the Sunday before, a guy was home watching the Super Bowl, and I don't remember who was playing, but I just I can remember – so many people talking about how they didn't even bother finish watching it because it was such a bad game. And in this case, this guy was feeling kind of loud. He was coming down with a cold or something, and he said the game was so lousy, he decided to go up and go to bed. Well, he's woken up because he can hear something in the house, and he gets out of bed, and he starts to walk towards his bedroom door, and he goes, who's there? He got shot three times through the door. Thomas Gagne, Jr., with the same gun he used to murder my, he and Scarborough used to murder my parents that Friday night. Wow. And how close was this to your, to your parents' house? Not very far. Same, not all that far. And, and, and to twist the knife even farther, my husband and this guy knew each other in college. They lived in the same dorm. He played football. My husband played basketball. I think he played football. Maybe it was baseball. But he and my husband knew each other. Wow. And Tim did somehow survive. The the, uh, the police told me that the doctor said if he had been in such good shape, he would have never made it because he had three massive heart attacks while he was in the hospital because of all the damage done to his body. Uh, I, I guess at mm-hmm. that time he couldn't uh, point out who this was that did this to him or he would have maybe oh, been no. off the street. No, no, because, I mean, the door was shut between them. And what's ironic is we went, we decided to attend the trial of Gagne for this in July of 97 because we wanted to show support for the sheriff's office and support for the DA's office. And also we wanted him to know, we wanted Gagne to know, hey, we're here and we're watching you. And all of a sudden, this guy comes around the corner and goes, Bri? And he goes, Tim? And they both go, what are you doing here? And all of a sudden, Tim gets like a light bulb in his, because all of a sudden he realized, oh my gosh, you know, it was Bri's in-laws that were murdered. And then he, and he says, well, you know, I have to testify today. And that's when we were, and all of a sudden we realized, oh, God, we couldn't believe it. You know, here's somebody that we that he knew. My husband knew. Yeah. So this and this was, guy being involved in both cases just proves what a a dangerous person he was. Oh yeah. Well, he had two aggravated assaults as a juvenile, 
And when he got transferred um, to a halfway house within a couple of days, he walked off and nobody even bothered to look for him. That could have been a chance to stop him and, and maybe you know, none of this would have happened. Oh, it gets better. Uh, 1994, some, oh, I can't remember exactly when 1994, David Leon Scarborough got arrested while trying to steal a car. He had a gun and he had illegal, illegal drugs on him. Well, his parents hired an attorney. He and his parents convinced his attorney that he's never done anything like this before. He'll never do anything like this again. So he took the case, and they go to the DA. And they spend the same story to the DA. DA dropped the charges. Well. A few months later, guess who murdered was in murdering my parents? And the thing that's ironic about it is Scarborough's parents have an expunged conviction for possession. And he and Gagne got into a shootout at one time over a girl. And Scarborough didn't tell his parents. Gagne went to his parents to apologize to them about it, you know, that whatever story he spun, his parents forgave him and didn't call the police. Somebody was shooting at their son, and they allow him in in and out of their house Mm -hmm. after that. Of course, I personally think that's where his father was getting his drugs from. So, you know, that's just my opinion based on some things that uh, a couple of his relatives who choose to remain anonymous because they're terrified of that family um, have told me. Huh. So and, it sounds like a, just a really bad crowd of, of uh, people that are hanging around together. Oh, yeah. And see, on top of it, he Scarborough and his family, they were in church constantly. His mother stood up in church and made the announcement that I knew – her son was innocent. I just wanted someone to pay. One of the most asinine comments I could ever think of. And that I forced the sheriff to arrest him. I never heard of him the first time he got arrested. How, you know, it's not like my parents were socially, financially, uh, politically, religiously, whatever, well-connected. And God knows Brian and I aren't either. So how were we supposedly supposed to force the sheriff to do that? Hmm. And then one time during one of the motion hearings, I was walking down from coming back from the cafeteria or something, and David's now ex-wife, who that's a story into itself. That's another family that was torn apart by Scarborough. Um, his mother, her mother, excuse me, was with was with me because her uh, her family hated him and they they nobody could have been more supportive than they were for us during that entire ordeal and she and i were walking back and all of a sudden we hear scarborough's mother go well if they didn't want their house broken into they shouldn't have gone out to dinner well that's that's pretty uh disturbing pretty disgusting to hear something like that yeah and uh i could feel because linda looped her arm through mine and started pulling me over towards the wall because I, at that point, I had just 
been like a laser focus straight ahead of me and was telling myself, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. And, you know, and so we finally we got back into the courtroom and I looked there and I said, so, did you pull me over towards the wall because you were afraid I was going to go after them or you were going to go after them? Oh, because she hated them. She goes, both. And so we were able to have a little bit of a laugh. But, yeah, it's amazing how crude and crass and insensitive people can be, especially the murderers' families. Yeah. And, and, and maybe and that's a, get, a sign of where some of their stuff comes from if they've got that kind of support going. And, and... Oh, yeah. I mean, and, say, and Gagne came from a known crime family. Harley Watts started selling and using, well, they all started selling and using drugs in middle school, uh, which uh, Scarborough testified that he was like 13 or 14. Gagne with his family, shoot, he could have been dealing in kindergarten. But uh, Harley Watts was 10 years old when he started stealing and using and selling drugs for him. His mother let her son, when he was 13 years old, go hang out and run around with two high school dropouts who were six, seven years older than him, no jobs, yet always had cash, had money for cars and cigarettes. And she let her, 13, her 12, 13-year-old child go hang out with them, leave her house with them. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, the saying you can't fix stupid, not even with duct tape. Definitely not a, a good crew, and it sounds like maybe when when some of them get together, they just all you know rub each other, or they rub off on each other, and make uh, whatever is going on even worse. Uh, like they're fueling each other's uh, bad stuff that they're doing. Well, there's an old Native American saying that says there are two wolves inside of all of us that are constantly fighting, and the one you you know good versus evil. And the one the, that will win is the one you feed the most. They all definitely feed the evil wolf. Wow. How how did these guys wind up getting caught, and how quickly did they get caught for, for what they did to your parents? Well, the first time Scarborough and Gagne were arrested, um, the Sheriff's Department apparently had their eyes on the Gagne, shall we say, crime empire in the peripherals. So... They were arrested as basically persons of interest at that point. Um, but they didn't have enough, you know, to really hold them. Then that following May, Harley Watts got Scott caught trying to steal a car. I can't remember if he was with Gagne exactly or for Gagne, one or the other. 14 year old, 14 years old, freaks out, starts babbling. So you can try to, you know, not getting too much trouble or any trouble for trying to steal a car and having drugs with him. And starts telling him everything about that night, including that David Scarborough, who's the one that carried the gun back to the car. So once they arrested Gagne and Scarborough, they all start confessing and they all start pointing fingers at the other. So they, it sounds like they, they turned on each other pretty quickly to save their own hides. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's not unusual. Once again, they feed the evil wolf. And what kills me is all of a sudden here a few weeks ago, 
Well, I did an interview with one of the local TV stations, and I guess one of his family members saw it or he saw it or whatever, so he called the reporter and wanted to do an interview. And he was claiming, oh, I wasn't even there. I'm innocent. It was this guy. And see, unfortunately, not long I can't remember exactly when it was afterwards. There was a young man by the name of Ro- Joe Ridings who worked at, when there was a Radio Shack in the Village Green Shopping Center, and these people came in one night, and the, what, the, this guy decided that Joe, whether or not he really was, was flirting with his girlfriend and murdered him. So he tried to claim it wasn't that guy because that guy's name was Manning. It was the other guy, Nance, that um, was did it. Well, then, all of a sudden, this Nance guy, who was in jail life without parole for his part in the murder of Joe Ridings, um, he goes to the sheriff's office, and he says, oh, I was there with this other guy. It wasn't them. And I've listened. I listened several times to his so-called confession. Number one, he has never been in my parents' house. He had no clue what of the layout or where anything. And two, he had no clues to what was stolen. And also you could tell when he was speaking freely versus when he had obviously memorized something. Because, you know, the cadence and the timbre of the voice changes. So they also went up and talked. The other guy, was, I think, was in Ohio. In murder, he's for in, in Ohio for murder or something. He's going to be in jail the rest of his life, and he told him point blank he wasn't even Knox County when that happened, um, and that he had no reason to lie to him because it wouldn't do any good because he was never going anywhere. And he what was really sad though. He said he didn't mind prison; it was the nicest place he ever lived. That's trouble. That's... So yeah, I mean that's I mean that's. That is sad right there. So anyway, right now Scarborough is trying to claim that they are the ones now, that he's innocent. They're the ones that did it. He is trying to rewrite history. He seems to forget there were, you know, people who are still around, who were there during all of this, who heard the testimony, who saw the taped confession. The sheriff's office investigated the fake confession. I testified at the post-conviction hearing um, about the fake confession. His one attorney, Scarborough's one attorney, got got really mad at me because he couldn't trip me up because there was nothing to trip up. And I'm like, what kind of idiots do you think we are? Or do you think the parole board is? that we're just going to believe anything that comes out of your mouth when you already have a history as a liar? He had a a deal he made with the sheriff's office that apparently a lesser charge or something. I I don't, I never knew the details of that, but that as long as he told, they told him the truth and they found out he didn't. So when he was being questioned by the prosecutor, prosecutor asked him, you know, something about lying to the police. And he said, well, I just wanted to help them. And the prosecutor stepped back and says, you, want, you lied to the police. 
because you wanted to help them. And he goes, nods his head and says, yes. He goes, well, why didn't you just go ahead and tell him, tell them that you were standing there and you watched Gagne shoot the, you know, one of them and then go and shoot the other one. And his comment was, I didn't want to lie that much. Jeez. Well, and just to, to, to backtrack a, a little bit, all three of these guys go through the, the, the legal process. At the mm-hmm. time, what did each one get? They were found guilty. Uh, what did they all get sentenced to? Well, the juvenile, um, because he agreed to testify against Scarborough and Gagne, they allowed him to be tried in the juvenile court, which I can understand because even at 14, 15 years old, he only looked like he was 10 years old. Um, anybody with a heart on a jury would have looked at his face and not been able to convict him. And he did, he did testify against Gagne, I mean, excuse me, against Scarborough. Uh, when Scarborough was convicted and was going to get life, two counts of life with parole, plus the aggravated burglary and robbery and stuff, and everything was consecutive, Gagne panicked. He was afraid he was going to get the death penalty. So he reached out and asked for a plea bargain to get the same uh, thing that Scarborough got, which that, that, that happened. Well, then several years later, we had a bunch of idiots on the Tennessee State Supreme Court who decided to rearrange and change a case law and make it retroactive. And it overturned over a thousand murder convictions in the state of Tennessee. And Scarboroughs were one of them. So that conviction for the murders gets overturned, but fortunately not for the aggravated robberies and burglary. And and just, so, just to clarify, what was it about the the murders that got overturned? What was the, the piece that, that overturned it? What were they arguing um, well, affected it? The judge the judge instructed the jury that they could charge him guilty of first degree murder murder or second degree murder. The Supreme Court decided that facilitation of murder should have been added in there also. So they created this new law that if you get charged with murder, even if it's first degree murder, you have to give the jury instructions that they can choose first degree murder, second degree murder, or facilitation of murder. Now the judge followed the law exactly as it was written at the time of the murders and the trial. But then the Supreme Court made it retroactive. Uh-huh. As most things, when changes in the law occur in the criminal justice system, they always make it retroactive for the criminals, but they never make it retroactive for the victims. Sure. That's, that's going to be frustrating for these guys to to sort of go from being all in on convictions for the murders to now they're just basically in, in jail for the the robbery part of it. Well, his sentence was about to run out because he in state of Tennessee for every day of felon serves for uh, whatever crime they've committed, they get two days off. Oh wow! Their sentence. Jeez. Yeah, it's, it's stupid. So anyway, fortunately, it was right at the cusp of that, so there had to be a bail hearing. And fortunate, 
the prosecutor asked for a million dollars in bail, and the um, judge gave him seven hundred fifty thousand dollars in bail, three quarters of a million dollars. Which um, Scarborough's response was, "That's not fair." It's not fair that your parents were gunned down in their in their own home as their forty fifth anniversary was coming up either, but exactly. And then on top of it, the it kept getting the trial kept getting postponed and postponed and postponed because there were so many. And then our judge was in ill health. And so finally Scarborough and his attorneys went to the prosecutor and discussed a plea bargain. Now, we agreed to it because, well, number one, at that time, we didn't know about the two-for-one, and which, I should, which when they told me that he was on the cusp of being released anyway, I should have asked questions, but I was still about, well, wait a minute, he's still got X amount of years, but I was so overwhelmed by the fact that murder convictions had been overturned and that we'd have to go back to trial, that just kind of flew by. So we agreed to the plea bargain, and he was supposed to spend, you know, two second-degree murder charges, 30 years each. Once again, we did not know at that point in time about the twofers. And so one of the reasons that we um, agreed to it was Emotionally, the thought of having to go back through that again, having to be around him and his family again, just was nauseating. And also, I was even though I had plenty of vacation time, because the company I worked for at the time, I'd been there pretty much longer than most, I had a lot of vacation time. But I was still afraid that I might get fired. Yeah. So we took, we took the, the plea bargain. But if we had known that he got two days off for every day served, I would have risked losing my job in a New York heartbeat. Yeah, and this is a, for a trial. Uh, this is a an ordeal for you to have to go through again just to, you know, to to deal with all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Uh, and his parents, he and his parents, never told their friends and relatives the truth. They, they all, all his friends and relatives, their friends, and like members of their church, they think that he is wrongly convicted, wrongly accused, because none of them came to the motion hearings. None of them were at the trial. He had one grandmother that stopped by for a couple of hours a couple of times, and that was it. And then the day he was convicted... After the, the jury finished delivering, had finished delivering the you know the, the conviction, they went back for the sentencing. At that point, his younger sister was there for the sentencing, and then she was there for the plea bargain. But she was not there for the rest of it, and I know there's no way they even told her the truth because she has she's told me I do not know the facts, and I must not have a heart. Because I am fighting his parole. Yeah, such a an ugly situation for it to be. You know, these your parents die in their own home violently at the hands of these guys, and here you are, less than you know, what is it, twenty five years later or so, and you're 
It'll be 27 years in okay. um, February. And, oh, and, and that's, in, the, in the petition, they keep saying he's been in jail since he was 18 years old or prison. That's not true. He was almost 19, he was three weeks away from being 19 when the crimes were committed. We didn't get, that was 1995. We didn't get to trial till January of 1998. He was convicted and sentenced January 16, 1998. He was almost 22, and that's when they took him to prison. Okay. And yeah, so, and, and this entire time, um, it's still for, for what they did to your parents, it's, it's a relatively low amount of time. And now you're faced with the, the possibility that this guy could walk out of prison. And I'm terrified that if he is paroled and if he is released based on who he is, what his family is like, He's going to do this. He's going to rip another part of family apart like he did mine. The only thing, he, I mean, he has shown no remorse at the plea bargain. All he said was, I'm sorry for my part. My, no, I'm sorry for my involvement. At the last plea bargain, all he said was, I'm sorry for my involvement. No emotion. No, I mean, that's like, I'm sorry I stepped on your toe. <laughs> yeah, just like he's doing the words because he has to, not because he means them. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's that's terrible. And you're you're not fight. You're not taking this lying down. You're fighting it. You're um. I uh, am my to... parents' daughter. I have <laughs> a stubborn streak a mile long. Well, and then that's a good segue to to what I want to talk about because uh, you've got a petition. You're trying to. <laughs> you know, get people to sign this to keep uh, um, this guy, put some pressure on to keep him locked up. And I think time mm-hmm. is of the essence here. You're trying it to get 2,500 signatures by the next parole hearing, which is December 9th, 2021. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Right. Okay. And I need and, to get, I have to have the uh, petitions into them several days before. Okay. So this episode. So we're, we're up to uh, almost 2,200. Okay. Hey, I'd like to have a million signatures, <laughs> yeah. honestly, but but well, uh, yeah, twenty five hundred is definitely a good goal. Yeah, and this episode's coming out December fourth, so it's five days before the hearing. But mm-hmm. uh, there, it, it, there's no time to waste, so listeners can please go over and sign this petition. Maybe share it on social media. Get some other people to sign it. Definitely. Can, can you tell? Listeners, how to find the the petition and um, how they can help you? Yes. You can go to change.org, and probably the easiest way to do it is just use the little magnifying glass search tool and type in justice for Carol, C-A-R-O-L, and less, L-E-S, dots, D-O-T-T-S. And... I do want to say, please read the petition. I don't want anybody to sign something they haven't read. And then please sign it and share it. There's also, when you um, sign it, they also give a little area reasons for signing. If you would like to leave a comment as to what your personal feelings are about why you're signing it or that type of thing, please feel free to. Um, we need all the help we can get. I do not want to see another family have to go through what mine has 
because of people like David Leon Scarborough. And, I, and I, I'm terrified if he gets out, he's going to be diving right back into the cesspool he came out of. Mm. That, tur- that you know, don't forget, he has been doing, selling, using, stealing since he was 13, 14 years old. Oh, and he's got, he's been doing the same thing in prison. He has been written up for multiple infractions, multiple dis- disciplinary actions, drug paraphernalia, flunk drug test, using drugs, selling drugs, stealing. Yeah. He has not changed. It seems like this is all he knows. Is this kind of list of... He, he, he thinks he's entitled to it. And his, his, some of his family members keep saying he deserves a second chance. He's had a bunch of second chances he's blown, and that he's been in prison long enough. Hmm. My question is, have my parents been dead long enough? Have I grieved long enough? Have I missed my parents long enough? What exactly is their definition of long enough for yeah. that? Just a, it's a, it's a terrible situation for this guy to, you know, cold bloodedly kill your parents and, and realistically have a chance of walking free after such a short time. It's just scary. So please, if there's anyone out there listening that will take the time to sign the petition, head over, sign it, share it on social media. You also have a Facebook page set up for your parents, right? Can you tell us about yes, that? Yes, I do. Um, it's less L-E-S dash Carol, C-A-R-O-L dots, D-O-T-T-S. And um, there's different, there's updates on there, there's pictures on there, and you can actually, you know, message me through there. Um, and, and on the um, on the Facebook page itself, on on some of the things that I have posted, uh, like a couple of the like, there's the one that's on there right now is from a podcast, not a podcast. I'm sorry, from a Zoom video interview. Um, please watch that, and you can and make a comment, um, and then go to change.org and sign the petition. And please encourage others to do it. There's an old saying, there, there for the grace of God, go I. Yeah. And, I mean, this just proves this, this can happen to anyone anytime. Yeah, any one of us could find ourselves in, the, in your shoes somehow and, and you know, not want to see the, the person that took our loved one from us having a chance to walk out of prison prematurely. So hope everyone will do it. I'll put it in the show notes so people can find the the petition as well easily and, and click right on it. Uh, and just one other thing I wanted to check too, as we wrap up, um, what, what about the other two guys? What's their status as far as prison? Well, Harley Watts has been out free and clear since December, 2001, cause he was a juvenile and guess what he's been doing. He's been getting arrested for aggravated felony and some other things, but he's not seen any real jail time. And of course, Gagne, uh, he's still in prison, and so far, it doesn't look like he's coming up for parole anytime soon, but unfortunately, he will. And then you'll have to go through the same thing again. Yep. Wow. 
Well, you know, I can't thank you for coming on enough to share your parents' story with us and, and helping us to get to know them a little bit. And I hope somehow, some way that you are able to keep this guy in, in jail where he belongs and uh, and hopefully you get the outcome that, that I think is just that you deserve. Thank you. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to reach out to people. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview for a true crime podcast. It's called Colts, Crime, and Cabernet. Be sure to give it a listen. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. When we started Cults, Crimes, and Cabernet, it was just a conversation between two friends about true crime over a glass of wine. It quickly grew into a passion project, and Melissa and I transformed this hobby into a mission. Our mission is to be a trusted resource while empowering others to use their voice and create a positive change for victims nationwide. After a year of covering different genres of cases, Whitney and I chose to narrow our focus and take a journey covering cold and unsolved cases in season three. While our main focus will be unresolved cases, we will still be exploring the fascinating world of cults. So we invite you to pop a cork and grab a glass because we have work to do. Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet is streaming on all major podcast platforms.